looking at the subject today of Christ as a unique Savior that produces one salvation. There aren't many saviors, and there aren't many ways to heaven. They go together. The first thing you'll notice in your bulletin outline, that when we talk about salvation, this is not, biblically now, it is not a partnership. Not a partnership. The biggest struggle we have in our day, presenting the gospel of grace to people, is that people do not believe they need God's grace to be saved. That's hard for us to understand, but that's the truth. Either they do not believe that they are as bad off as a sinner as God declares them to be, or they believe that God is so full of love as to not require perfection in obedience. In heart, they believe themselves to be basically good, certainly capable to do good, or at least good enough to win God's favor. Now, to help fuel this error, we have preachers who present salvation as a partnership. I'm sure you've heard this. God has done all that he can do to save you. Now the rest is up to you. And by the word rest, the rest is up to you. Now we're going to talk about your contribution. So God does his part. You do your part. And that's how salvation comes to be. This heresy is as old as the New Testament days themselves. In Acts 15, a dispute arose in the church of Antioch, located in Syria. That was Paul and Barnabas' home church. And the dispute is stated by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in these terms, John 15, or excuse me, Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, that is Jerusalem, to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Who ever heard of such a thing? They came down and taught this. Well, both Paul and Barnabas did not take this lying down, but they came into sharp disagreement with these men from Judea. So the church at Antioch, decided to send a delegation to, Acts 15, verse 2, go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So we have in this the summoning of the first church council. Normally, I say normally, a local church handles its own affairs within the confines of its own fellowship. But this was a biggie, if I can put it that way. The assertion of the Jewish constituents was restated at the council, Acts 15, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, Acts 15, verse 6. Now, in reading that, already, I say already, you can see that there has been an escalation of the issue. 
at Antioch in Syria, Paul and Barnabas' church, these people said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 1, Acts 15, at the council meeting, this is what it reads. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Oh. So the narrow brush, circumcision, has now been developed into the broad brush, the entire law of Moses. And brethren, generally, you know, that's how things go. The camel's nose, if it's tolerated in the flap of the tent, will result in the whole beast being inside the tent if you don't smack the camel in the nose and force him to retreat. So they started out with, well, you got to be circumcised. By the time they got to Jerusalem, they got to obey the whole law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, how widespread was this assertion that salvation was the result of a partnership? Yes, Christ died for sinners. Yes, a person had to believe in Christ as Savior. But along with that faith, there had to be an adherence to the law of Moses. It was Christ plus your obedience to the law. That equals salvation. Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, when you think of the churches of Galatia, that's a province. But the churches formed there were Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So he writes a letter to them, and he gives us the background of this dispute. After Paul's apostleship was authenticated by the other apostles in Jerusalem, and before this group arrived from Jerusalem to contest what salvation was about, we, we read, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. Galatians 2, verse 12. But when this unauthorized delegation of Jews came from Jerusalem preaching their message that Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved, Paul tells us that Peter began to draw back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Galatians 2, verses 12 and 13. So what do we have here? Peter caved. Barnabas caved, a domino effect was begun, and it began to corrupt all these churches in the province. So in Galatians 2, verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified, not saved, by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. 
because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2, 14 through 16. Peter is being uh, dressed down by Paul for his error. Well, as a result, Peter backed down as well he should have because he was in the wrong. He was sending the wrong message about salvation to the Gentile brethren. He was siding with this wrong view that one is justified or saved by faith in Christ plus obedience to the law, primarily circumcision. But not only so, the dietary laws because Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. So, I mean, once it starts, start with circumcision or whatever part of the law, it, it, just, it just goes on and snowballs. Now, is this teaching a little and therefore inconsequential issue, or this, is this a big deal? Is this just two apostles having a difference of opinion that's a little more than a minor skirmish, or is this a draw your sword to die for? Well, obviously, the church at Antioch thought this to be a die-for issue because they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem for a hearing and a resolution of the matter. We may further understand the seriousness of the issue by listening to Paul's opening remarks to his letter to the Galatian church, saying, I'm astonished, writes Paul, that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which in reality is no gospel at all. Evidently, some are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. And as we've already said, I'm going to say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Very strong language. Let them go to hell. Is what he is saying. Note how Paul labels this message of the Judaizers who taught that one cannot be saved unless he or she observes Jewish law. He says that's a different gospel. Secondly, that's no gospel at all. And thirdly, it's a perverted gospel. Three strikes and you're out. You know? This is some of the strongest language that you will find in the New Testament. And Paul's fervor is aroused because the integrity of Christ as the unique Savior, securing the only salvation there is, is in jeopardy. How could this happen? Well, we are told in Galatians 2, 4, and 5, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Galatians 2, verse 4 and 5. There are some things, brethren, worth standing for. 
And salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, is one of them. In Galatians 5, Paul went on to elaborate on the seriousness of adding human obedience to the work of Christ. Here's what he says. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose. You're either saved by the law or you're saved by grace, but you don't get to pick and choose. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Galatians 5, 1 to 4. Very pointedly, he is saying, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have Christ as Savior and then try to save yourself through obedience to the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, circumcision, whatever is in the rest of the law. Basically, what he is teaching is that salvation is not a partnership. Faith in Jesus along with personal obedience to the law, that's a partnership. And Jesus is not sharing the glory of his salvation with you or with me or with anyone else. If we could have saved ourselves by our obedience to the law, then the cross of Jesus was unnecessary and a waste of God's precious and perfect son. Now in our day, there's not many Judaizers running around advocating faith in Christ plus circumcision. But there are myriads of preachers advocating atonement for sin by the blood of Christ if you, in and of yourselves, will just repent and believe. In other words, they see your repentance, your faith, as your contribution to the gospel message. It is Christ plus your repentance and faith that equals salvation, and that, in essence, is the same as Christ plus circumcision. Now, the gospel does call us to repentance, doesn't it? It does call us to faith. But it teaches that these necessary attributes to apprehend Jesus are the gifts of God himself and not of ourselves, lest we boast, Ephesians 2, verse 8. And I've heard the boast. And I'm sure you have too. Yes, Jesus died, someone said to me, but I had to believe. Brethren, if you truly believe that you are in partnership with Jesus by your repentance and faith in his work, then you have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace just as surely as if you were counting, counting on ceremonial circumcision to fit you for glory. That's how serious this is. You are not a partner in your salvation. You are a recipient. You are a beneficiary. And therein we boast, not about our right decisions, but about the Savior who in love drew us to himself. As one of our hymns say, the Lamb is all the glory. 
in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Amen. So salvation is not a partnership, though it's often presented that way. Somehow people aren't reading the book. Secondly, salvation involves no penance. Penance is but the flip side to partnership. Because penance has the idea of paying for your own sin, primarily to keep you saved, or to assure your salvation by making up for sinful failures. Not found in the Bible, but it comes right out of Roman Catholic playbook. Let me read it for you. This is right out of their catechism. Penance is a sacrament in which the sins committed after baptism are forgiven. Penance remits, that is, releases us from guilt or penalty. Penance remits sins, the eternal punishment, and at least some of the temporal punishment due to sin. The sacrament of penance remits sin and restores the friendship of God to the soul by means of the absolution of the priest. Absolution means to forgive our pardon and comes from the words of the priest, I absolve thee, spoken by the priest. The penance assigned by the priest might be prayers. It might be fasting. It might be giving of alms to the poor. It might be reciting the rosary so many times. It might be paying for indulgences, doing works of mercy, etc., 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 whatever the priest wants you to do to atone for your sin. Dr. C.D. Cole, former pastor of Jarvis Street Baptist Church, Toronto, explains. Here's what he says. The basic fatal error of Romanism is the denial of the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. Just that one little statement. I'm going to read some more, but just that one statement. Wow. If he put his finger on it, what? The basic fatal error of Romanism is the denial of the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. In other words, you need something more. <laughs> you need Christ and uh, something else. He goes on. It denies the efficacy of his sacrifice on the cross. Or in layman's terms, the cross wasn't good enough. It wasn't complete enough. He goes on. What he did on Calvary must be repeated. And that's what the Mass is all about in Roman Catholic Church. What he did on the cross is re-sacrificing Christ. And it must be supplemented, here it is, plus, plus, Christ, plus, plus, through works of penance. And this makes priestcraft and sacramentalism, the sacraments, necessary. Romanism is a complicated system of salvation by works. It has salvation to sell, but not on Isaiah's terms, that is, without money and without price. Isaiah 55, verse 1. It offers salvation on the installment plan and then sees to it that the poor sinner is always behind in his payments so that when he dies, there's a large balance that's unpaid and he must continue payments by suffering in purgatory or 
until the debt is paid by prayers and alms and suffering from his living relatives and friends. The whole system and plan calls for merit and money. From the cradle to the grave and even beyond, surely the wisdom that drew up such a plan like this is not from above, that is from God, but it's earthly and sensual. In other words, they just thought it up on their own. They didn't find it in the book. This works on the conscience of those who feel guilty about their sin and do not feel forgiven. That's how this works. But we've learned previously by the, in this series that forgiveness is based on truth, not feelings. Truth first, feeling second. And to this I would add that the feelings do not trump the truth. The truth is what it is, whether you feel it to be so or not. What's the truth about forgiveness? What's the truth about the work of Christ on the cross? Well, over against penance, the Bible declares, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Yes, freely pardon. Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. You mean I don't have to pay? No, you'll get a free pardon. This is repentance. It's not penance. This is forsaking sin. It's not paying God off. And the result is that God will freely pardon. No cost to you. Verse 1 is appropriate as well. Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money. You come. Buy. Eat. Come. Buy wine. Buy milk without money, without cost. Doesn't that say something to us? It's free, folks. It's free. It's free. We have to laugh at these ads on TV. Buy the copper pot, you know, for only $39.95. Get a second one. All you have to do is pay for the shipping and handling. <laughs> right? They're always on the second one. It's you got to pay. And then you, by the time you figure out the shipping and handling, you've paid for your second pot or whatever it is. How thorough is God's pardon for sin when we come to him through Christ? Let me read. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Well, if he's not remembering our sins against us, do we have to fear our sins? Do we have to pay for our sins? That's Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 13, lists this as a provision of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Something brand new. Wonderful. Micah asked, Who's a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight 
to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Matthew 7, verse 18 and 19. Or the writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 11 and following. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's the animal sacrifice. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Hallelujah. That's grace. Hebrews 10. No penance, no payments, no personal suffering necessary. Christ has done it all. Sad to say, sometimes I think we are better Roman Catholics than we are Christians. We live in ways that amount to a practical refutation of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, his sacrifice, his mercy, his forgiveness. Brethren, you do not pay anything for your sins. Not anything. I do not pay anything to be forgiven. We sing at our communion service, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but his blood, he washed it white as snow. He did it. And the great sin here is when we have the audacity to believe that our puny contributions of self-abasement or self-denial or humiliation adds anything to the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. Ascetics beat their body or hurt their bodies believing that such temporal infliction of pain somehow atones for sin. Well, it doesn't. It adds to sin. It says, Jesus, I do not believe that your sacrifice paid for all my sin. I think there's a balance on the account that I must clear myself. Well, if you think that, you are thinking wrong. And if you think that, you misunderstand the gospel and you do not know salvation by grace. We come very close to the Galatian error of a perverted gospel when we begin to think that the sins committed after conversion, which the Roman Catholics would say after baptism, must be atoned for through good works. Abstinence is often the Protestant version of penance. Hear what I'm saying now. Abstinence. 
is often the room, the Protestant version of penance. And we list the vices, the mores of our Protestant fundamentalism. No alcoholic beverages, no movies, no dancing, no playing cards, no gambling. We believe that by doing these things, we somehow are holy and somehow more saved than if we leaned on Jesus alone. I know I've been in this group when I was first converted. That's dangerously close to being severed from Christ and falling from grace. However necessary it is that we live holy lives, and it is necessary. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord in peace. That's for sure. Hebrews 12, verse 9. Let us not trust in personal abstinence as our badge of holiness, but on Jesus' blood. We're holy because of grace, what he's done, and what he continues to do in our lives. That brings us then to the second point in the outline. How are we forgiven? We're forgiven because we are cleansed. What does that mean? Well, firstly, it means that there is, on God's part, no counting of our sin against us. We can hardly believe this. Who's merciful like that? No counting of our sin against us. David's in his first psalm that he wrote about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba said it this way. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Psalm 32, the first two verses. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans. He gives us the theology of those words from David. He indicates that this is how God deals with our sin. Because of Christ and his sacrifice, those who trust their case to Jesus have their sins paid for in full. Their sin does not count against them. It's legal jargon. Romans is a legal book. It's legal jargon without, with spiritual overtones. Think of the ledger book maintained um, by Marley, the secretary who worked for Scrooge in the story Christmas Carol. He, under Scrooge's direction, kept the accounts right down to the last penny of every poor person in the community who ever had the misfortune of having to deal with Ebenezer Scrooge. No mercy, no extension of payments due, no forgiveness of the debt, none of that. They owed it, the ledger showed the debt on the account, and there was no recourse but to pay, and if you didn't pay, you ended up in debtor's prison. Exactly what Scrooge says. If they can't pay, they can end up in the debtor's prison. And we'll get, the, we'll get the, the payment out of that way. You know, that's the rule of law. The law of God will not show you mercy. It will not pay your debt. It can only demand justice. And there's plenty of debt on the ledger book under your name and under my name. But along comes God. And because of the intercession and substitution of his son, 
who steps in and pays in full the debt of his believing people, those sins are not counted against you if you stop trying to eradicate the debt yourself and cast your total burden upon Christ. It's all or nothing. It's Christ or nothing. But observe, God does not simply forgive the debt. He pays the debt. Ah, that's a different wrinkle. The sins on your ledger are moved from what you owe. Those sins are moved to Christ's ledger. The book the books have to be balanced under God's justice. Someone has to pay. And if it isn't you, then who? He himself, writes Peter, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you Healed. You have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. We have in our hymn book this wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, written in 1798, entitled, And Can It Be? We'll sing at the end, of the, at the end here of our message. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain? For me to him who death to death pursued. Amazing love. <laughs> How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? First thing to understand in salvation is that there is no counting of our sin again. But then secondly, and this is the precious part too, God has accredited Jesus' righteousness to our account by his grace. You've all heard the expression, I'm sure, we have to balance the books. Have to balance the books. Or there's a discrepancy in the books. The columns don't balance. Sometimes our men counting our offering in the office afterwards, they will work long, long time and re-add and re-add and do it again and again because it isn't balancing. What's coming in, what one person says is not what the other person has figured out and so they count and recount. In the most simple of terms, books have two columns. They have an income column and an expense column. Even if you do simple books for your, your own home, that's the way it works. If we think about this from a spiritual perspective, expense column comprises the debt our sin has accumulated. It is what we owe. Income column comprises the resources to pay off the debt. 
what we owe. Spiritually speaking, the Bible says we are dead in trespasses and sin. The debt has killed us. We are bankrupt before God. There is no income. There's no money in the bank to pay off the debt. The puny two cents we throw into the pot in an attempt to pay are laughable. More, they are an insult to the holy demands of a perfect and just God. We're locked away in debtor's prison with no hope of ever getting out. You're going to die there. Then along comes Jesus, seeking the lost, seeking the sinner whose debt of sin holds him fast with no hope of release. And he says to God the jailer, what if I take so-and-so's sin and in exchange I give him my perfect credit rating? You can credit his or her sin to me. And you can credit my righteousness to them. This is not a dream, folks. This is the good news of the gospel. What does the scripture say? Paul writes, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Romans 4, verses 3 through 8. There's a washing that takes place that makes us whiter than snow. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me, says David. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be cleansed. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51, verse 2 and 5. Brother, no one can improve upon this. <laughs> How foolish of us to think we can improve upon this. Self-abasement, self-torture, self-denial cannot prove Anything better. It's all of Christ or it's not at all. Do you know why the Old Testament sacrifices numbered into the thousands every year? Year after year. Thousands of animals. Because, the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4, that's why. The Old Testament law was, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
hand for hand, foot for foot. That's Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, part of the law. Notice that. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The principle here is equality of worth. Equality of worth. So the sacrifice of a bull for a person or a lamb for a person is not an atonement equivalent of life for life. Think of a man found guilty of murder in our court system and he's sentenced to death. And so the defense attorney comes before the judge with the defendant's dog and he says, here, put the dog to death to comply with the sentence. No, well, you would be laughed out of court. How absurd. And in a sense, all those animal sacrifices, by their very inferiority, were not suitable equivalents to make atonement for sins. The lambs, the little lambs, pointed to the lamb, Jesus Christ. So singularly perfect, so inseparably linked to mankind by his own humanity, so sinless, so spotless, that his one-time singular offering of himself satisfied God's anger once and for all. Let me read it to you. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 7, 27. Again, he did, not enter the mean, he did not enter into the holy holy by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 12. Verse 26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 You cannot add to that through penance. You can't add to that in a partnership. The atoning sacrifices have ended. Christ is exalted. He is seated.